Hello and welcome to the Killer Kind Podcast. This is your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. I don't have much of an intro like I normally try to do for you guys, but if you're new, welcome. Thank you for being here. I put out episodes every two weeks. We cover cases from murder to disappearance to odd and frustrating cases. We cover them all. Some of the less popular and some more popular thrown in from time to time. So we've got a disturbing case for you today. I apologize in advance, honestly. There's some discussion about dismemberment, which we luckily don't have to talk about too much here on the show because there is a special place for someone that can do something like that to somebody else. It just chills me to my core. But this case is one that I knew I needed to cover. And honestly, I had forgotten about it until I saw it mentioned somewhere because we're actually coming up on the anniversary of the murder. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and dive into the murder of Lauren Giddings. Lauren Teresa Giddings was born on April 18, 1984, to Karen and Bill Giddings. She grew up in Tacoma Park, Maryland, with her two younger sisters, Sarah and Caitlin. Lauren was popular in school and always had tons of friends. She was also very athletic as well, playing both softball and field hockey in high school. But Lauren was very smart and driven in all aspects of her life. Her sister Caitlin said that she just had a passion for life like no one else. She went after what she wanted and she had a huge heart. She loved people and animals as well. So when deciding what she wanted to do when she grew up, she first thought about being a doctor, but quickly realized that medicine wasn't for her. So she decided to go to law school, another way to help people in this world. Now, Lauren was the first person in her family to go to college, and she chose the state of Georgia for her college career. Her friends and family said that she loved the South and that she was a country girl at heart, despite being from the North. She loved country music, and she knew that she would end up in the South somewhere. Lauren chose Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia for her undergrad, She graduated in 2006 with a major in political science and a minor in religious studies. In 2007, she landed an internship as a project assistant at the King and Spalding Law Office in downtown Atlanta. This is where she met her future boyfriend, David Vandiver III. Lauren was 23 years old when she started working there, and David was 20 years older. However, the two hit it off. Now, from what I understand, they did have a sort of off-and-on relationship because in 2008, Lauren went off to continue her schooling, and according to David, he never let their relationship get too serious because he was scared of commitment, which sounds about right for most men, I think. (laughs) I say that to say some reports call David Lauren's boyfriend, and I might even mention that here because it's so common that he's referred to as her boyfriend, but we'll we'll kind of get into their relationship a little bit more. But in David's interview, he admits they weren't in a committed relationship. So in 2008, Lauren enrolled in law school at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. 
and she knew that she wanted to be a public defender, which is the type of lawyer that would be appointed to someone who couldn't afford a lawyer. She was passionate and knew pretty early on what she wanted to do with her future. Like I said, she was a go-getter for sure. Throughout her time at Mercer, she lived right across the street from the law school in a second-story apartment at Barrister's Hall. It was a small apartment complex with the majority, if not all, of the residents at the time being Mercer law students. I read that someone said that even the maintenance man that worked there was a law student. Lauren thrived in school and in the community as well. She ran in the park. She became active in her church. She even became president of her law school's federal society. And she obviously made a ton of friends, bonding with another female specifically named Ashley, who was a fellow law student who was also from up north and moved to the south for college. But as I've mentioned already, Lauren was popular. She had an infectious personality. She was gorgeous, a blonde bombshell, if you will, which is why a lot of people have compared her to Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. Her law school classmates joked around with her comparing her to Elle Woods. She was definitely similar. She was, like I said, this beautiful blonde, always wearing pink, and who was actually pretty smart. She even had a little dog, like L did in the movie, and her dog's name was Butterbean. But nothing I read made it seem that she was some ditzy blonde at any point in her life. She knew how to have fun, but she also could be very serious and took her law school career very serious as well. And just a few years later, in the spring of 2011, Lauren graduated from law school. The group of friends that she had made all graduated together and they celebrated their graduation. Lauren's boyfriend, David, came down for graduation and spent time with her family and met some of her law school friends. Again, at this time, it was kind of unclear what their relationship status was exactly, but we'll just call him her boyfriend around this time. (laughs) Lauren actually flew home a few weeks after graduation to Maryland to attend her sister Caitlin's wedding, where she was a maid of honor. Her sister, Caitlin, is so thankful for that time that she had with her because it would be the last time that she would see her older sister. After the wedding, Lauren Giddings went back to her Mercer campus to continue studying for the bar exam. The exam was going to take place in August, and if you're not familiar with what the bar exam is, it's basically an exam you have to take after studying or after graduating from law school. It's basically the final step to become a licensed attorney in the United States. It's a huge deal. So it was a big deal that Lauren even took time away from studying to go to her sister's wedding. I'm sure she was like, really? Do you have to get married right now? I'm kidding. But if it were my sister, I would at least make a joke about it. But either way, Lauren gets back to campus and continues cramming for this exam. On Friday, June 24th, 2011, Lauren and several other law school graduates decide to go out to a local bar in Macon as one last celebration before really buckling down and cramming for this exam. The group stayed at the bar until it closed, and all of them went back to Ashley's boyfriend's house. Again, this is one of Lauren's best friends in college. Ashley's boyfriend's roommate was actually Lauren's ex-boyfriend Joe. So they all kind of knew each other. They all kind of hung out regularly. 
And eventually that night, they all decided to go to sleep. So they all just crashed at this person's apartment. Ashley said Lauren ended up staying the night in Joe's room. And the next morning, everybody kind of slowly started to get up and start to leave. Ashley said that she didn't see Lauren or Joe when they left that morning, but that his door was closed when she was leaving, so she just assumed that the two were still there together. Again, everybody sort of went their separate ways, knowing that they would all be studying pretty much full-time from now on until the bar exam, knowing it would be a while before they all saw each other. Ashley described it as everyone getting into like a deep studying hole, blocking everything out, getting rid of any distractions and focusing only on studying. And that's pretty important here because a few days go by and on Wednesday, June 29th, Lauren's sister, Caitlin, gets a call from one of her friends saying that she hasn't heard from Lauren in a few days, which again is not too surprising. However, all of their calls to Lauren started going straight to voicemail, and that is kind of what's odd here, out of character for Lauren. So Caitlin obviously becomes worried and calls their mom, Karen, and asks if she had heard from Lauren, and she told her that she hadn't. Then Caitlin decides to call Lauren's friend, Ashley, who, again, I mentioned earlier, and Ashley says that she hasn't heard from Lauren either. And at that point, Ashley is like, I'm sure everything's fine. None of our college friend group has talked to each other because we're all in this deep study hole. So it's not abnormal that Ashley and a few others haven't talked to her in a few days. However, Ashley said that she would go over to Lauren's apartment and check on her. So Ashley and her boyfriend both head over to Lauren's apartment and she knocks on the door. But she receives no answer. Caitlin tells Ashley where the spare key is and tells her to go inside. Obviously, this is when they start to worry that something could be wrong. They fully expected Lauren to open the door when they got there, but now there's no answer. So Ashley and her boyfriend are nervous, rightfully so, as to what they might find going inside the apartment. Lauren could be hurt or worse. Once they get inside, though, there is no sign of Lauren. However, they do see her purse, wallet, and keys, which is obviously alarming because she wouldn't have left without her purse or wallet at least. If she was going somewhere, she would have at least taken one of these items. So Ashley decides to call the police and report her friend missing. Caitlin tells her mom and dad what's going on, and her dad decides to drive down to Georgia to help look for his daughter and to talk to police and just try to figure out what is going on. And then their mother, Karen, decided that she would fly down later that next day. Now, it's important to note here that Lauren was supposed to be moving out of that apartment that coming weekend. So when her friends and even the police stepped inside her apartment, and noticed that nothing had been packed up, it was kind of a red flag. And it also made everybody wonder, when did she leave? When did something happen to her? Surely by this Wednesday, she would have at least started packing up, right? Now, after Ashley calls the police, she continues calling around to anyone and everyone who might have talked to Lauren, and she couldn't find anyone who had heard from her. So after the police officer arrives at the apartment, he basically 
is there to just perform a welfare check. The officer doesn't see any sign of forced entry and no sign of a struggle or attack that had taken place inside. So there's really nothing that he can do at that point. So Ashley, her boyfriend, along with Lauren's ex-boyfriend, Joe, and Lauren's next-door neighbor, Stephen McDaniel, all team up to start looking for Lauren. They continue to look inside her apartment for any clues as to where she could be. They find a Zaxby's receipt from Saturday night, and then they stumble across an email that Lauren sent at 10.13 p.m. on Saturday night. This appeared to be the last known activity from Lauren, and it was an email to David Vandiver, and it was a very troubling email. It stated that Lauren felt like somebody was stalking her and that she believed someone had tried to break in the night before. This sort of terrified her friends. So they start pounding the streets pretty much. Some of them take off on foot. The rest jump in a car and drive around campus, all trying to find where their missing friend is. This takes place pretty much the rest of the day and into the night on that Wednesday evening. The following morning, Detective Scott Chapman is assigned to the missing persons report and heads over to Lauren's apartment. And when he gets there, he's met by this same small group of friends that are looking for Lauren. And they all sort of catch the detective up to speed, let them know what all they've found, explain that she was supposed to be moving out that weekend, but nothing had been packed up, the suspicious email that was sent on Saturday, etc., So, at that point, Detective Chapman basically says, thank you for your help thus far, but we need to sort of block off the whole area and start our investigation. Now, he does ask them all to go down to the police station and give their statements and answer any questions about Lauren and sort of help piece together even just a timeline leading up to that day. And they also have David, again, Lauren's on-again, off-again boyfriend, come in for questioning. Now, he's just over in Atlanta, so they ask him to drive over and meet with him. They want to interview, obviously, the people closest to her, so he's pretty much number one on their list of initial people. And I won't dive too far into the interview they have with David because he was cleared fairly quickly, but I will say they looked into David pretty closely initially because he's the older man who she had been seeing, and they find out that she had spent the night with her ex-boyfriend Joe that Friday night, so they needed an alibi from David, and honestly, they didn't really get a good one. Other than the fact that he had been away at a golf tournament that weekend that she was last heard from, he had no receipts on him at the time or anything that could have proven that he was at this golf tournament. Their initial thoughts were maybe it was a love triangle between David, Lauren, and Joe. But after conducting this initial interview, David was free to go. Obviously, the police were keeping their eye on him, or at least kind of keeping him as a suspect in their back pocket. However, it did not take long for their attention to shift away from David, and we'll get into that. So on that Thursday... June 30th, the day after Lauren was reported missing, the group that had been searching for Lauren was taken in for questioning, or really to give statements. So they're all removed from the scene itself, and it's probably for the best. So that morning, the police started searching Lauren's apartment and searching the parking lot and every inch of this property. 
And right around noon or so, the temperature heats up outside to about 90 degrees. And the wind starts to pick up as well. And that is when investigators on the scene notice a very foul odor coming from the dumpster in the back of this apartment complex. So, investigators direct their attention to the dumpster, and at first it appears just to be a bag of trash that smells. However, underneath that trash bag, they find a very large black trash bag that actually contains a female torso. And it's just the torso. No legs, no arms, or head were attached. Rightfully so, police suspect that this torso could belong to their missing person, so the medical examiner is called in to take the torso for DNA testing. And it was later determined, using hair samples and DNA comparison with her parents, that the torso did in fact belong to Lauren Giddings. But obviously, that took some time. So, after discovering the partial remains, police go back inside her apartment and do a luminol test to see if there are any traces of blood inside the home. Basically, trying to determine if this torso could belong to Lauren, if the dismemberment could have taken place inside the apartment. And sure enough, when police spray the luminol in Lauren's bathroom, it lights up like the 4th of July inside her bathtub. Now, we've talked about luminol testing before, but basically, if you're not familiar, it's a test that can find traces of blood even if it's been cleaned with bleach. And it was obvious that despite being cleaned, the bathtub had been covered in blood at some point. Now, at this point, news is starting to get out about this Mercer graduate who had gone missing. And the local news stations are starting to send crews out and make reports on TV about what's going on. And it was only a few hours after the discovery of the partial remains that one of the local news stations receives an anonymous tip that police had found a body outside of Barrister's Hall. Not sure who the tipster was, but they clearly didn't know that it was just partial remains. Shortly after word gets out about these remains found, the group of friends that had been taken down to the Macon police station, including Lauren's friend, her ex-boyfriend, and the next-door neighbor, Stephen, are all brought back to the apartment complex. Now, you obviously can't have your cell phones with you while being interviewed, so once news broke that a possible body was found, none of these people knew. And when police brought this group of friends back to the apartment, where they had all been parked, basically left their car, they were surprised to find a swarm of local media. And obviously, the local news reporters rush over to each of them individually and start asking them questions and start pressing them about what they know about Lauren. And this is where things get interesting. So reporter Michelle Gasada with WGXA is the first to approach Lauren's neighbor, Stephen McDaniel. And I will play the audio of that interview for you here, but I do encourage you to check out the YouTube video. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. This guy doesn't really look like your typical law student. He has huge, bushy, curly hair, kind of like a long afro. He looks disheveled, if you will. I really don't know how else to describe him. But during the interview, he's just 
sort of starts out explaining that he's been helping look for Lauren and they don't know where she could be. So here's the first part of Stephen's interview. Person that was living there? Yeah, Lauren was my neighbor. Um, we're just trying to find out where she is at this point. I mean, no one has seen her since Saturday. I mean, the last time anyone heard from her was an email that she sent out, and I mean, no one's heard from her since. Did you see her hang out with anyone at the time or anything like that? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, I've always hear noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer. Yeah, she and I were we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went at, we went over, one of her friends had a key, we went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss, but, I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we, we just don't know where she is. I mean, what about, um, in the, like... Now, before we play the second part of the interview, I'll let you know that police are still on the scene. They are actually watching him do this interview. They're watching all of them do these interviews, kind of looking at body language and and really listening to what they're saying. And you can literally see police tape behind Stephen, as well as what could be one of Lauren's friends or someone who looks visibly upset sitting in a car behind him. So it's kind of already an awkward or uncomfortable interview as it is. But then this happens. The door was locked when everyone got here. We just don't know where she is. What about um, in the like the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard any, had you seen anything there? I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. Now, I won't say how I felt when I first saw this clip. I'll get into that later. But there are two ways to look at this. As I mentioned, Stephen and the others had no idea that police just found a body or anything had been found. So the news that this is possibly their friend and neighbor being found on the property where Stephen lives would be shocking and visibly upsetting. Or on the flip side, you could look at this sort of reaction as it making Stephen look like he had something to do do with Lauren's disappearance and possible murder. He is visibly upset and appears to be in shock. The interviewer and police both find this behavior very odd. The police especially believe this means Stephen was involved. Now, Stephen does continue on with the interview. However, he appears to have a hard time breathing. His voice is very shaky and his whole demeanor has changed. 
Following the TV interview, Stephen is asked to come back down to the station, rightfully so. Before that, though, they ask him for permission to search his apartment. Stephen agrees. However, when he finds out that they plan to use cadaver dogs to search inside the apartment, Stephen expresses concern that he could have stepped in something and tracked it inside, which to me is a very odd thing to say. Now, during the first interview, he's very cooperative, very chatty, overly chatty, really. And as he's brought back to the Macon police station for the second time, this is when police start really searching Stephen's apartment. Now, they had cadaver dogs on the property earlier that day, and the dogs actually hinted at something near Stephen's apartment, but nobody really thought anything of it at the time. However, now things have changed. So, during the interview, I mentioned he was very overly chatty, that first interview. He was asked about his life and what he does sort of on a day-to-day basis, asked if he had a girlfriend or what he was up to on the weekends. And Stephen said that he didn't have a girlfriend, that he was actually a virgin, and he stayed home usually all weekend by himself. He didn't hear anything going on inside Lauren's apartment that night that we suspect that she was last seen, last heard from, despite them literally sharing a wall. We all know from the Lululemon case, if you share a wall and somebody's being likely murdered next door, you're going to hear something. But again, police brushed it off at the time because they weren't really seeing him as a possible suspect. Mainly because he was being cooperative and answering the questions and it seemed to be truthful. Now, the second interview, the detectives get a totally different guy. I listened to the Murder With My Husband podcast cover this case, and they talked a lot about this second interview and how creepy and honestly bone-chilling that interview was to watch. And honestly, that interrogation, I didn't really watch before they mentioned it. I knew that was something I was going to look at, but I I didn't really have plans to focus on that. But (laughs) y'all, it is creepy. Again, highly encourage you to watch at least a little bit of it. It's like a two-hour long interview, so I know you won't watch the whole thing, but it is. It is the weirdest interview I have ever seen. Steven is beyond creepy in that interrogation room, and I mean, he doesn't move, y'all. Straight up doesn't move the entire time. Two-hour long interview, and this guy barely, barely moves his head to look at the investigator. The majority of the time, he's staring straight ahead. I mean, his shoulders and everything from the neck down stays in the exact same position. Not only that, he answers all his questions with a yes, no, or I don't know. There's a few other more explanatory things, but 90% of the questions that he has asked, it's yes, no, or I don't know. Very monotone as well and sort of robotic is one way that it was described. And even catatonic is how the two that I watched in the podcast or the YouTube video of their podcast they were talking about. It's very strange and honestly just uncomfortable to watch. Now at one point during the interview the detectives are just kind of getting 
nothing from him. So they're trying everything they can to get him to talk. Well, one of the detectives gets a call from an investigator at the scene who says they have found a whole drawer full of condoms, which wouldn't normally be odd for somebody his age and a single guy, had he not claimed earlier to be a virgin. So Detective Chapman sort of takes this information and runs. He asks Stephen about it. Why are there a bunch of condoms if you told me earlier that you were a virgin? And Stephen openly admits that he actually has broken into neighboring apartments in this complex and has stolen these condoms as trophies. Why didn't he just say that he bought them? He looks straight at a detective for the making police department and admits to a crime. Now, luckily, this gives investigators something to hold Stephen on. They book him and charge him with burglary and continue to interrogate him. So this basically gives them more time. It buys them more time with Stephen. Now, Detective Patterson comes in and starts talking to Stephen, showing him a picture of Lauren and asking if he knows her, if they're friends, etc. And he says yes and yes. Again, he's very robotic in his movements and it's, it's a simple yes or no answer. Part of this case that I don't think I ever realized before researching, this guy was studying to be a lawyer. I know I already mentioned that, but in the interview, Detective Patterson actually asks him what kind of lawyer he wanted to be. And he said that he wanted to be a criminal lawyer. Patterson asked him about working at the district attorney's office there in Macon, and he was actually on the prosecutor's team. Detective Patterson said, so, oh, you're, you are on our side. You are on our side. And just the irony of that comment, that statement is insane. So let's move on from this creepy interview. And let's go back to the investigators that are searching the property while Stephen's being held. And let me tell you, the evidence really starts coming together. More and more pieces of the puzzle start being put together. So let's start with the pieces of evidence found around the apartment complex. The key piece of evidence, or what I consider one of the initial key pieces of evidence, which is a hacksaw with blood found on it in the maintenance closet. Now, when the maintenance guy was asked about this, he said that the hacksaw was new and he had no idea where it came from. Basically, that he hadn't seen it before they told him about it. Then there was a bloody sheet found in the laundry area of the maintenance room. Again, the maintenance man was asked about that as well, and he basically ends up being cleared as a suspect as he provides detectives with an alibi and explains he's not familiar with any of these evidence, like pieces of evidence that are being brought forward. But clearly, somebody put these there. But how? Nobody is supposed to have access to the maintenance room besides the maintenance man himself. Well, let's get into what they find in Stephen's apartment. And let's answer that question, shall we? Because that ties everything together for the investigators. So, first off, investigators find multiple weapons inside Stephen's apartment. And I mean three firearms, a baseball bat, and multiple swords. This is something that is brought up during that two-hour interview 
why does a single man who lives alone and basically does nothing need this many weapons, especially three different firearms? Then detectives found two keys lying on Stephen's dresser. One had a Georgia Bulldog emblem on it, and turns out it was a master key to every apartment at the complex, including the maintenance closet, which was huge. But the second key they found actually belonged to Lauren's apartment specifically. And that's not all they found. As if they didn't already feel like they had the right guy, investigators found the wrapping that the hacksaw came in. It was an exact match to the bloody hacksaw found in the maintenance closet. Then, there was some women's underwear found that were tested and proven to belong to Lauren. So, you would think at this point, basically, that after all of this evidence stacked against him, that detectives and the prosecutors on the case would be confident that they could put Stephen in prison for the murder of Lauren Giddings for life. However, that wasn't really the case. Despite all the physical evidence pointing to Stephen, there was no DNA evidence that put Lauren Giddings and Stephen McDaniel together. Nothing that put him inside her apartment and vice versa. Now, with that said, the police did have enough evidence to start building a case. And five weeks after Lauren was reported missing, they had enough to officially charge Stephen McDaniel for the murder of Lauren. While waiting for trial, prosecutors start building their case against Stephen, knowing they needed more. So they continue searching Stephen's apartment, including his computer. They are basically just trying to find some sort of motivation for this killing, a motive. And let's get into what all they find. So on Stephen's computer, they find some pretty horrifying stuff. So... I preface that by saying it's horrifying, it's going to be disturbing, so bear with me. They find pornography, including child pornography, which is hard for me to even say. They find sadistic pornography, that includes torture and violence. They find searches that Stephen made that literally said how to become a serial killer. If you want to get yourself caught for a murder, just have already Googled how to become a serial killer or how to murder someone. Anyways, as well as how to molest someone in their sleep. Also, how to kill someone in their sleep. He goes on some different chat rooms and forums and talks about how he would even commit a murder if he was going to do it. And things only get worse for Stephen from there when investigators find home videos. One video in particular shows Stephen putting a video camera on the end of a stick and holding it up to Lauren's window, basically peeking through the blinds. Now, if you search this case, other than that first TV news interview where he makes that comment about the body being found, this is one of the second most popular videos that you're going to see of the case. And it turns out that the video of him holding the camera on the end of the stick was actually taken the night of the murder. 
And not only that, there was an, actually a video that showed Stephen himself inside Lauren's apartment on a different night when she wasn't home. It showed him walking around her apartment and just moving stuff around. It was honestly chilling to watch. I, I feel like that's the word to describe this case is just chilling. So basically, after finding these homemade tapes, it at least proved that Stephen had accessed Lauren's apartment. He had obviously been stalking her, so prosecutors knew this was their smoking gun. It placed Stephen at the scene of the crime. In April of 2014, when presented the evidence against him, Stephen McDaniel pleaded guilty to the murder of his fellow classmate, Lauren Giddings. And he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Stephen accepted the deal and gave a written confession as part of that deal. In the letter, Stephen explained that at 4.30 a.m. on Sunday, June 26th, he put a mask over his face and gloves on his hands and entered Lauren's apartment with the master key. Supposedly, she had woken up when the floorboard creaked. When he realized he was caught, he decided to try and strangle Lauren. After a struggle, Lauren and Stephen ended up on the floor of her bedroom where he continued to try and choke her. Side note, police noted in their evidence presented to the defense team that there were defense wounds found on Stephen's body, including scratches on his arms and face. Supposedly, Lauren was able to pull Stephen's mask down during the attack, revealing her attacker, and she asked him, Stephen, what are you doing? But Stephen continued to strangle Lauren until she died. Stephen admitted to dismembering her body in her bathroom the following day and disposing of the various body parts in a dumpster outside the law school. And he didn't actually dispose of the torso until Tuesday, June 28th. In February 2018, Stephen filed a petition asking for a new trial. In the 73-page document filed in Richmond County Superior Court, Stephen McDaniel argued that his constitutional rights were violated throughout the investigation and the pre-trial process. It's important to note that he represented himself here before Judge John Flint because he had basically fired his team already because he was the type of guy that honestly felt like he was the smartest guy in the room. You, can, you know the type. He argued investigators on the scene documented that he was verbally unresponsive and staring off into space, like in his interview, and did not allow him to be cleared by medical staff before asking for consent to search his apartment, where investigators again gathered that evidence they planned to use against him in trial. He argued this in addition to his former attorney's failure to dispute the matter in court caused him to have an improper trial. The judge obviously rejected the bid for a new trial. Lauren's family is relieved that Stephen McDaniel was brought to justice, but her sister Caitlin told WGXA that it's sad because, quote, it seemed like she might have been one of the few people who were actually nice to him and gave him some attention, even though he might have been a loner. There's no story here about telling your kids to lock their car when they get in or don't go to this side of town. You know, there's no, she shouldn't have done this and it wouldn't have happened. Because 
You should always be nice to people. You should always be nice to your neighbors. Just because someone looks different doesn't mean they are. But in this case, he just was. Lauren's family continues to keep her name alive by hosting an annual Butterbean co-ed softball tournament, again named after her beloved dog, put on to celebrate the life of Lauren Giddings. And from what I can tell, they donate proceeds to certain charities each year. They also put on an annual 5K that raises money for the Lauren Giddings Scholarship, benefiting Mercer Law Association of Women Law Students. The money goes towards bar exam preparation expenses. Wow. Again, this one was bone chilling. Let me tell you, the only reason I covered this case or what mainly sparked my interest here was that TV interview that Stephen did. That literally shook me to my core when I first saw it. A few things to add, Lauren's boyfriend David has since come out saying Lauren has been had been wary of Stephen for a long time. In September 2008, David said that he received an email from Lauren saying her and Stephen had a disagreement in class and she said the crazy guy next door gave her the stink eye and was quote out to get me. This case is disturbing too because I didn't mention that police never found the rest of Lauren's remains. They searched landfills and all the garbage cans on campus and found nothing. So had Stephen not placed the torso in the dumpster at the apartment complex, he may have never been caught. It was clear that he would have gone on to kill again for sure. So who knows how this case could have ended had he not been so careless. But as always, I am dying to know your thoughts on this case. Is this a case you've heard of before? Let me know over on the podcast Instagram page. Also, please be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps other people find the show and it would just mean a lot. But that'll do it for me this week, guys. I'll be back here in two weeks. Until then, stay safe, guys. Bye.